Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, we've got a great guest today who I'm really proud to have on. It's Andrew Feinstein, who is the former um, MP for the African National Congress, obviously in South Africa. He was very active in the struggle against the great evil of apartheid, which fell in 1994, because of struggle both in South Africa, but also internationally. That's a very important point, which we're going to return to. Anyway, hello, Andrew. Good to see you. How you doing? Hi, good. Thank you. Great to be with you. First, I just want to talk about you yourself, because I think this is relevant and, and always interesting. Um, you were born in Cape Town in a Jewish family and that you have, I think, in it's fair to say that's had a big impact on your politics and um, huge trauma, like so many Jewish people across the world um, in terms of the horrors endured uh, by those who came before you. So I just want you, if you could tell us a bit about your family and, and, and that context. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So my dad was South African. His his family had fled pogroms in Tsarist Russia, landed up in South Africa unexpectedly, thought they were being taken to New York. Um, my mom was actually Austrian. Um, she survived the Second World War in Vienna itself, one of very few Jews to do that. She was hidden in a coal cellar for three and a half years. Wow. And whenever the Gestapo or the SS were in the area, she would be rolled up into a carpet and that would be pushed up against the wall in case they managed to break in um, to where they were hiding. So, and she lost dozens of her family, mainly at Auschwitz, some Theresienstadt as well. So, you know, that history certainly loomed large as my siblings and I were growing up. But it also, my mom was very active in something called the Black Sash in South Africa, which is white women opposing apartheid. And she would often say to us, you know, she would explain to us about the family history, about the notion of never again, and why South Africa was not a normal country. And I suppose we were fortunate in the sense that we moved constantly between South Africa and Austria. My dad would decide he couldn't live under apartheid anymore, and off we'd go. My sister and I coined the phrase semigrate to describe what happened. But within months, my dad wouldn't have learned a word of German, and we'd be back in Cape Town. Um, so I grew up very conscious of, of racism in all its forms. And it's probably the reason why I, first of all, became involved in the struggle against apartheid at a very young age, in my late teens. Um, but also, I suppose, why my life has been dominated by anti-racist struggles. Now, apartheid is something which for people like myself, I'm a geriatric millennial. Uh, I was born in 1984. Um, but, uh, you know, it was it, it, there's something, a specific horror, which people like myself grew up learning about. Uh, you know, yeah. 10 when apartheid fell, Nelson Mandela, one of the few figures, I suppose, in my lifetime who achieved kind of near sainthood, basically. Yeah. Um, now, you've actually suggested that, that what exists as regards the oppression of the Palestinian people is worse than the apartheid you fought so courageously against in your young years. So can you just explain, what do you mean by that? Sure. First of all, you know, that doesn't mean to in any way diminish 
the awfulness and the brutality of South African apartheid. It, it was the most horrendous system. I mean, I had countless friends who were murdered directly or indirectly by the apartheid state. Um, my wife, who is of Bangladeshi origin, you know, not only wouldn't we have been able to marry in South Africa, to live in the same racial group area together, we wouldn't even have been allowed to travel in a car alone together. Such was the absurdity of, of the racist apartheid system. But I think what has happened in Israel has taken it to a sort of a more efficient, more brutal level than was ever the case in South Africa. So in South Africa, we had the system of Bantustans, these 13 little places that were supposedly independent states. No black South Africans regarded them as independent states. They, they ignored them effectively. Not dissimilar to the occupied territories, although of course there are differences. But the one thing that has always struck me is the extent of the brutality of Israeli apartheid goes many levels beyond what happened in South Africa. Yes, there were appalling massacres. You know, Sharpeville in, in 1960, Soweto in 1976, Hoi Patong in 1989, where I actually tried to act as a facilitator of a reconciliation process after a terrible massacre of ANC supporters by state-sponsored militias. But nothing like we've seen in the occupied territories in both Gaza and the West Bank. And, you know, I had this view even before the awful events, first of all, in Israel of 7th of October, and then the Israeli response to them. I'm talking even about the period before that, where you would see what was effectively high-level warfare against the Palestinian people in already appalling and restrictive conditions that they lived in, in the occupied territories. And this, for me, takes Israeli apartheid to a level of brutality that we never experienced in South Africa. Of course, another fundamental difference that I think is incredibly important is that South Africa, and you know, growing up even as a privileged white South African, you knew South Africa was a pariah state. Israel, certainly in the so-called Western countries, doesn't have that status. And I think that has given various governments of the state of Israel a sense of impunity, a sense of being above the law. And that has enabled them to do things that even the South African apartheid state would not have considered doing. The other very important difference that I think also plays into this, this different intensity of, of the physical brutality is that the South African apartheid state was very dependent on the black African workforce for the economy to function. You know, mine workers, um, all of the South Africa, of course, being very rich in natural resources, was very dependent on that form of dangerous manual labor. And here was this almost indentured, enslaved workforce. And so it was incredibly important for the South Africans that that workforce was at least of sound body. Even though they characterized black Africans as drawers of water and hewers of wood. So they saw them as being beneath them, mm. as somehow lesser human beings, mm. which I think unfortunately has played into the Israeli-Palestinian narrative. Mm. But they had to ensure that they were a productive and effective workforce. Israel does not have anything like that same 
economic reliance on the Palestinian population. And I think again there, that gives a license to perhaps behave more brutally in the extent of, of murder, of bombing, of the day-to-day -day treatment of the population. You know, anybody who has witnessed um, the crossing points into and out of Gaza or the West Bank will just be shocked at the extent of dehumanization and humiliation of Palestinians by young Israeli soldiers. Um, and you know, the Bantustans you could drive into and out of, you could walk into and out of in South Africa. So I think we are seeing a sort of a security state apparatus at a level that went way beyond the apartheid state in South Africa. In terms of similarities and differences, I mean, historically, oppressors have often dressed themselves in the garbs of victimhood, but also equally, they can historically be victims. The South of Africa, the, the Boers were, uh, yeah. were were locked up by the British Empire in concentration camps. I think that was when concentration camp was first, uh, first coined, and they used that often, that history of victimhood, to justify their own oppression and so on. But obviously, and I don't need to tell you about it, it's your history, um, your family history, um, the Jewish people suffered 2,000 years of horrendous persecution culminating in the attempt to physically exterminate all Jews. You were the first South African politician to introduce a bill um, remembering the Holocaust back when you were a MP. Um, but you'll see, but in this context, you'll get the argument, well, look, we need a land of our own and that's what the state of Israel is about uh, to, to make sure never again means now, as it keeps being said. Um, so what's your response to that in terms of the way Israel uses that history, um, which is a real history, which obviously exists in terms of what the Jewish people suffered. Um, but also now, for example, often you'll get, you know, the Hamas not only compared to the Nazis, but they'll say worse yeah. than the Nazis. And that yeah. memory used in, in that sense to justify what's happening in Gaza. So I'm just wondering what's your general response to that? Given sure. your own I mean, it's, it's an incredibly good point. There was a sense of victimhood in South Africa. And there was the same sense of the rest of the world is against us. You know, the UN is this corrupted, awful organization that doesn't understand. And, you know, in the South African context, it was also around we are true Christians and we are fighting for Christianity and civilization. Um, and the suffering of, of Afrikaner South Africans was very real. The irony being that those concentration camps were inhabited not only by people who were neo-Nazis, because many of our politicians in the post-World War II period had actually been involved in neo-Nazi supporting militias during the Second World War. Um, but astonishingly, you know, communists were put in the same concentration camps because they were seen as dangerous, that they would have some sort of allegiance to, to Russia or to the Soviet Union, and they had to sort of coexist in very uncomfortable ways. Um, the Holocaust is probably the framing moment of my entire family's life and history. I've lectured at Auschwitz on genocide prevention for the Auschwitz Institute, which was one of the most extraordinary and emotionally exhausting experiences I've ever had. Um, and of course, many members of my extended family made their way to Palestine in the aftermath of World War II, sometimes discovering other family ministers, um, other family members who they thought were deceased, had been killed in the camps. So, you know, 
that is all an ex a very vital part of, of my own personal history and, and of my politics, I suppose. The issue becomes when that victimhood is utilized to oppress others. And that is what we saw in apartheid South Africa. And that is what we have seen in the state of Israel. Um, you know, we often forget, and it's, it's sometimes very difficult for Jews, and I understand this difficulty. We often forget that when many Jews, not all Jews, but many Jews, because, you know, it's also important to bear in mind that anti-Zionism has been a very important strand of Jewish thought as long as Zionism has existed. So it's, it's not as though all Jews are necessarily Zionist or are necessarily committed to the state of Israel or identify with the state. Interestingly, my parents happen to identify very closely with the state of Israel. And we regularly visited Israel. We visited Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial on numerous occasions. But being the victim is what resulted in a small number of Jewish South Africans being centrally involved in the struggle against apartheid because they believed that never again didn't only apply to Jews, it applied to everybody. And when they found themselves in an apartheid state like South Africa, they immediately sided with the oppressed, not the oppressor, because they themselves and their families had been oppressed through 2000 years of history, as you say. The same applies in Israel when, you know, the formation of the state in 48 coincided, obviously, because they were related events with the Nakba against the Palestinian people, where tens and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were pushed out of their homes. And Palestinian life since 48 has been a series of devastating traumas, culminating in the current situation that is perhaps the worst I have certainly ever seen in my lifetime. And I believe that victimhood should make Jews at the forefront of social justice and struggle against any injustice that we find anywhere in the world. And if that injustice is perpetrated by other Jews, we as Jews still have a responsibility to call that out. And it's really because of my Jewish background and my Jewish heritage that I got involved in the struggle against apartheid as early as I did. And it's because of my Judaism. It's because of the place that Israel has in my family, in my extended family's personal and political history, that I believe it is so important to speak out against the way in which Israel conducts itself in relation to the Palestinians. And it's why, you know, Nelson Mandela, who I was unbelievably privileged to work with, and believe me, working with him over many years and seeing him at least weekly, the mythical nature of the man doesn't diminish at all. The most extraordinary human being I've ever come into contact with. And we can spend hours just talking about that and his views on Israel and Palestine. But, you know, he spoke about apartheid in South Africa and Palestine as the key moral issues of our time. Yeah. And then when he came out of jail declaring our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinian people, he continued to say, now, it is the issue of Palestine that is the most important moral issue of our time. And it's really that that has motivated me. Oof, goosebumps. Um, in terms of uh, parallels, the struggle against apartheid. So you had obviously the struggle of the ANC, which 
course, you were very proudly part of. And you had an international struggle as well, the anti-apartheid movement. My, my dad was, was, was involved in that as well back in the day. Um, and I suppose in terms of, again, well, I suppose this is where the similarities and differences, because, you know, as you say, South Africa was treated as a some sort of pariah a state, even though Western governments were complicit often of the crimes of apartheid and saw it as a kind of bulwark against communism and, and, and all the rest of it and treated the ANC as terrorists. Um, but you had broad support for the anti-apartheid movement. That was a respectable movement to be part of. Um, and I'm just wondering in terms of, you know, the role that played in why it was important. Um, because I suppose one of the things I find grim and, and, and depressing is while there were courageous white South Africans who fought apartheid, I think it's fair to say that most white South Africans bought into it and had to reluctantly be forced to realise apartheid had to end. Um, and that was against their interests, as they saw it. Uh, but they didn't feel they had a choice. And again, there are extremely courageous Israeli peace activists who I keep interviewing. Um, they are very marginalised. And if you look at public opinion in Israel, well, the polling suggests, for example, that most Israelis don't think enough firepower is being used in Gaza and most support the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. It is grim, grim reading. But there's no the difference is there's no there's no incentive for them to change in the way there was with the South Africans because white South Africans realize the ghost is up. They don't think that. They think we can go away with anything. <laughs> Nothing's gonna stop us. The West yeah. aren't gonna change their views. Absolutely. The role of that anti-apartheid movement and whether you can see boycott, divestment, sanctions, the role of that, and, and if we can ever do the same thing. So the anti-apartheid movement was an extraordinary phenomenon. It was led by South Africans, and it had its roots domestically in South Africa. So what led to the end of apartheid ultimately, and this was an incredibly long struggle we shouldn't forget, was a combination of black South Africans on the, on the ground showing the most unbelievable courage and fortitude, making the country effectively ungovernable. But I think that would have been, to some extent, ineffective in bringing an end to the system without this extraordinary mobilization globally, where, you know, you speak to people of my generation. I, I was born in 64. Um, there are very few of them who are of a political bent who don't recall their involvement in some way or another in the anti-apartheid struggle, even if it was just driving past a Shell garage when they needed to fill up their car because Shell was being boycotted as part of the global anti-apartheid movement, even if it was not buying South African origins and of oranges in, in the supermarket. It's very important to note that at the moment, our governments and many governments in, in the sort of so-called Western world are trying to make illegal any sort of boycotts of Israel. But that global anti-apartheid movement was absolutely essential in bringing about an end to apartheid in South Africa because it had a massive impact on the South African economy. So the daily quality of life of privileged white South Africans started to decline mm -hmm. when the banks who had been boycotted by students who refused to take loans out from them, Barclays and Chase Manhattan, as it was then called at the time, in the UK and US respectively, when they decided not to roll over South Africa's debt, everything suddenly became much more expensive for the apartheid state. Oil, food, everything that we needed. And that was the point at which F.W. de Klerk, who was our last apartheid president, who was on the right wing of an already far right wing political party, decided the game was up and he had to negotiate. 
And that's why I think BDS is such a crucial, peaceful tool of struggle against Israel's oppression of the Palestinian people. It is the only thing that is going to bring the majority of Israeli citizens to their senses right. because it affects their day-to-day -day lives. And when you are paying for the role your country plays in the oppression of another people in that way, then I think suddenly the calculus changes. And I, it's important to bear in mind. So, as I said, I believe the economic dimension was the most important. But the cultural and sporting dimensions, the academic dimensions, these were all very important as well. You know, white South Africans used to pride themselves that they were the rugby world champions because they hadn't played anybody else for decades and decades because they were banned from international sport. And that had a huge psychological impact on the country. And I think what is also relevant to today's struggle is that you're quite right in saying, you know, Thatcher and Reagan described Mandela and the ANC as terrorists. There is also strong information to suggest that Thatcher called on the apartheid state privately to execute Mandela as it was too dangerous to keep him alive in prison. And Mandela reminded her of this fact the first time they met after he'd been released. He came to South Africa and gave a talk at Westminster and she was obviously retired by then. But she sort of hobbled into the talk and as she was hobbling to her seat, he went up to her like he always does very magnanimously and said, you must be surprised to see me. And then explained that he was very well aware that she had suggested that they kill him off. Um, I don't know what her response was. I'd love to know. So would I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, the reality is that Thatcher and Reagan actually propped up the apartheid regime. Thatcher's husband, Dennis, actually did huge amounts of business, a lot of it against embargoes, with apartheid South Africa. The Reagan administration was involved in fighting in, in Namibia and Angola that was basically with the South African apartheid forces against the MPLA government in Angola. But at the end of the day, they could not publicly and openly support apartheid South Africa in the way our political leaders do Israel at the moment. And I think that's a fundamental change that we need to understand as to where that is coming from and why is that the case today? I mean, linked to that, you know, oppressors will often accuse those scrutinizing or attacking or fighting their war crimes, their oppression as being prejudiced against them. I mean, you can see that with, with Putin's allies. They, they constantly attack those who oppose the invasion of Ukraine as being driven by Russophobia. Um, I suppose the question here is, you know, anti-Semitism is real. It's actually very ingrained in European culture. It does exist and within living memory caused the great Absolutely. horror of, 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 of extermination of the Jewish people. Um, so we have to take anti-Semitism seriously. And at the same time, those who are apologists for what is a horrific mass slaughter, I'll, I'll ask after this about the question of genocide in South Africa's case, um, uh, as being as being driven by anti-Semitism, that's used to shut down those uh, those voices. In fact, before I spoke to you earlier today, a German Jewish activist who's been involved in the solidarity movement with Palestinians, who I interviewed uh, a while ago, got in touch with me to say that the Ministry of Culture in Germany has decided to make artists um, sign to, to say if they agree with the um, IHRA definition of anti-Semitism in order to receive any state funds. Artists in Germany are very dependent on state funds. The IHRA definition is that, is that what frames criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism. 
So just interesting that. I mean, it's interesting with Germany because almost they're using the guilt which yeah. the German state had. And I'm going to say it, a lot of the German people, I'm not saying that in a collective guilt way, but it is true, a large section of the German people did buy into and, and knew the Holocaust was happening at the time. They're using that guilt and making others, Palestinians, pay for it. But I'm just interested what you think about that. We take anti-Semitism seriously and the question of anti-Semitism, uh, false claims of anti-Semitism, and he's been shut down solidarity with the Palestinians. You know, Owen, I think for most people on the planet, unfortunately, racism and discrimination is a reality. You've experienced it yourself. In my I, own case. Homophobia, I suppose, yeah, sorry. Yeah. You know, in my own case, from the age of, I don't know, I was eight or nine, and my mom had drove a little mini, and the original ones were much smaller than the modern ones. And we were trying to get six of my school friends into the car to take us to football practice. And one of the boys said, how do you get a dozen Jews into a mini? You throw a half cent piece on the back seat. And my mom told this boy to get lost. She never wanted to see him again. And he'd be walking to football practice from then on. And I sort of said to her afterwards, mom, why were you so cross with Gavin? What, you know, and she explained anti-Semitism to me and why he was saying that. And so it's been a very, very real factor in my life. I've experienced my maiden speech in parliament, two national party members. So, you know, members of the apartheid party were thrown out of the assembly because they were calling me a communist. I'd never belonged to the South African communist party, but they were calling me a communist as I was speaking. And eventually I stopped and said, why do you think I'm a communist? And they said, well, you're a Jew and you're a member of the ANC. Of course, you're a communist. And you know, so it's been a very real factor in my life. I've been very fortunate that even, you know, the experience of homophobia you sadly had to experience had physical consequences for you. I've never experienced anything like that, and I'm extraordinarily grateful for that. So racism of which anti-Semitism is a part has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. And it's made me so determined to oppose every single form of racism and discrimination that I come across, be it anti-Semitism, which obviously was, was top of the pile for me because I happen to be Jewish, Islamophobia, which especially moving to the UK, I realized remains such a central problem and obviously became a different type of problem after the tragedy of 9-11. And even anti-black racism, which I've been astonished at the extent of in, in Western Europe and parts of Eastern Europe since, since I've lived here. So, my difficulty is when those sorts of campaigns against racism are utilized to try and silence people speaking out on behalf of other oppressed people. So I do believe, quite honestly, and I think there is enormous evidence for this, that the Israeli state, quite a few years ago, as the BDS movement was gaining momentum, the Israeli state did take a very conscious decision why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. 
Learn more at byheart.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. To label all criticism of Israel and its policies as anti-Semitism because it believed that would make it far more difficult for campaigns like the BDS movement to gain meaningful traction because they realize, you know, Israel and South Africa are incredibly close allies. And the Israeli government is plenty smart enough to understand how important BDS was to ending apartheid in South Africa. And I think the problem we have is that through things like the IHRA definition, through this very disabling of any criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic, through identifying people who have different politics to yourself as anti-Semitic, or in my case, self-eating too is the thing that I'm constantly told, I think is not only incredibly disingenuous, remarkably bereft of any sort of personal integrity or values, but it profoundly and fundamentally undermines the incredibly important and very real struggles against anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and all forms of racism and discrimination. And I do think, Owen, that this is one of the reasons why our political leaders are so uncritical in their support of Israel and have just decided that the alternative, the nuance, which is quite difficult, is so dangerous because of being labeled anti-Semitic that we'll just steer clear of it. And, you know, Germany, which you raise, is an extraordinary example at the moment. Germany is tying itself in the most extraordinary intellectual and psychological and political knots dealing with Israel at the moment. It's almost as though, as a nation, they're trying to espouse the view that we committed a genocide and therefore the victims of that genocide can do what the hell they like, which to me is the opposite of the message that they should be the bearers of, which is we committed genocide and we have to oppose genocide wherever it occurs and by whomsoever it is perpetrated. Just before I ask my final question, I want to ask you about South Africa taking Israel to the International Court of Justice, which is the highest uh, court of the United Nations. Um, and this is over the uh, what it claims is, is Israel has violated the Genocide Convention of 1948, to which it is a signatory, uh, as well as countries like Britain and obviously the vast majority of countries on Earth. Um, I've been covering this extensively on this channel. I've gone through this document. It is an extremely serious document, uh, to say the least, for those who haven't read through it. They have, I mean, it really is extraordinary, incredibly evidenced. They've gone into a huge amount of depth. Even if you're aware or spent a lot of time trying to, I suppose, follow the war crimes being committed and the rhetoric of Israeli leaders and officials, you'll still be shocked by it, partly because of stuff you weren't aware of, but start partly just because it's all in one place. 
And what they deal with is two questions. For those who don't know, it's conduct, genocidal conduct, um, and intent, which is genocidal statements, uh, which are illegal. It's illegal under the, gen gen uh, the Genocide Convention to incite genocide. Um, and Israel actually has a legal responsibility to take action against anyone who uses genocidal intent. Uh, so they're already just banged to rights on that point because the Prime Minister, President, Minister of Defence, most of the cabinet at this point, members of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, Israeli army leaders, soldiers on the ground, engaging in rampant, throwing genocidal rhetoric around like confetti. But I'm interested, why do you think the significance of South Africa, um, I suppose, taking this action? And I am interested, again, because you said this is worse than apartheid, the genocidal language that is being used. You know, I interviewed Raz Sigal, I keep going back to this interview. He's an Israeli-American professor, uh, sorry, associate professor of genocide and Holocaust studies. Right. And he said it's, it's actually very rare for intent to be so clearly stated. Normally what happens is the offending state just dresses up its language in humanitarianism, denialism. No, 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 we're not doing this, that or the other. But it's just, you know, they're human animals. Do Amalek in the Bible, which is where God orders the Israelites to kill all men, women, children and livestock. It's not subtle. So I'm just wondering the, the significance of that case and also mm. that question of geno genocidal intent being so vocal. Yeah. Oh, and my day job is to write books and make films about conflict and the global arms trade. As I say, I've lectured and written on genocide prevention for the Auschwitz Institute. I have never seen a, a document alleging genocide as thorough, as well argued, and frankly, as, as overwhelming yeah. as the South African document, which doesn't surprise me when you look at the lawyers involved. The legal team is led by a gentleman by the name of John Dugard, who is probably one of the finest, if not the finest international lawyer on the planet, who has worked on international law, on war crimes, on genocide his entire career. The fact that he's South African is not coincidental. And this is why I think it is so significant and symbolic that South Africa have brought this case to the ICJ. As I mentioned, apartheid South Africa and Israel had a very long and a very, very close relationship. The two, in an extraordinary moment of history, where our neo-Nazi prime minister, a chap called B.J. Foster, who was a brutal minister of justice, who had someone I knew very vaguely thrown out of a 10th floor window because he was an anti-apartheid activist, um, became prime minister. And I remember seeing on television, which had only very recently come to South Africa, mm. seeing him traveling to Israel. And his first stop was at Yad Vashem, which, as I mentioned, I had visited quite often as a child with my parents and which has had an enormous impact on me, obviously. And, you know, my mom was seething and, and I said to her, what's the matter? And she said, how can this man be at Yad Vashem paying his respects to the dozens of my family who died in the Holocaust? And I said, what do you mean, mom? And she said, the man was and is a Nazi. On that visit, Foster, and I think the Israeli Prime Minister at the time was Shimon Peres, signed an agreement that effectively enabled both Israel and South Africa to become nuclear states. 
And that for me is incredibly symbolic of the extent of the cooperation between the two countries. So Mandela, before he was even president in South Africa, was asked by Ted Koppel, a very then very famous US newscaster, you know, why he was so wedded to the Palestinian struggle. And his brilliant response was, well, because South Africa's struggle and the Palestinian struggle are one and the same struggle. America's enemies are not South Africa's enemies. And the ANC and what was then the Palestine Liberation Organization under Yasser Arafat had incredibly close relationships. And what were described in political discourse of the time as fraternal relations. And Arafat was actually one of the first foreign leaders to address the democratic South African parliament. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who <clears throat> with Nelson Mandela, <coughs> excuse me, it's probably the biggest influence on my life. Yeah. And, and a friend and, and a mentor in many ways, who has, has been very supportive of my work. Archbishop Tutu went even further than Mandela. He said, why would I not be incredibly critical of a state that practices apartheid like we experienced here, but even more importantly, that was on the side of my oppressor to ensure that my oppression continued. And he then cites the example of the fact that nuclear weapons were developed jointly by the two countries. And so I think the fact that South Africa, which is, you know, in many people's consciousness, an extraordinary example, despite the very many challenges of the post-apartheid period, is the standout example of a country that has won its liberation from racist and what some describe as colonial settler oppression. So the fact that it is South Africa bringing this case against Israel to the ICJ, I think has all of that history embedded in it. And South African politics to this day remains very in touch with the Palestinian struggle. When you know, I was in South Africa a few months ago, for a couple of months, and ordinary South Africans, and it's a highly politicized country and obviously a very race conscious society. This was even before the 7th of October talk incessantly about the situation in Israel and Palestine. It's of great concern to the majority of South Africans. So when the chief rabbi of South Africa said that by bringing this case to the ICJ, South Africa has humiliated itself internationally. In fact, I think exactly the opposite has happened. I think South Africa is taking on that mantle that Mandela took on so well and so easily after 1994 of trying to be the world's conscience when it comes to racial oppression, when it comes to issues like genocide. And to me, it adds significant weight to the case that is being brought, that it is South Africa doing it. Just finally, um, people often look back at horrors and injustices in the past and they kind of elect themselves as if I was back there, I would have, I would have stood up and I would have been on that side. You know, I would have spoken out and fought against the apartheid or, you know, or maybe for example, gay rights, for example, or maybe the rights of women to vote, for example, going, going further back or, 
you know, you know, just great injustices yeah. in the past suffered by people who are oppressed, discriminated against, suffered huge bigotry. The, the truth is many people do not speak out at the time. They don't. They speak out after. It's easy. It's easy afterwards to say you're on the right side of an issue when, you know, it's actually often tuck. Often people had to pay a cost, didn't they? They had to sacrifice yeah. and pay a cost. I'm just wondering about that finally in the context of, of now, because I think, you know, like I worked in the British media now for 12 years. I'm not naive about the British media. And I'm not surprised, I would say, by the response of much of the, of the British media to what's happening. But I am still shocked, shocked to my core. I keep saying that. You know, I, I was clear about the racism that infests the British media. And yet to see Palestinian life so wantonly treated as having no meaning and no value whatsoever in the least subtle way possible. It is shocking to watch as you see Palestinians, men, women, children, babies being slaughtered, often with, well, with Western bombs. It's, it's, a, it's a shocking experience. But the fact that so few people with a platform are speaking out is grim. It is pretty grim, to say the least. So I'm just wondering in terms of, you know, there's a cliche, the cliche, wait, it's become a cliche, George Orwell, to tell the truth in a time of, de de of deceit as a revolutionary act. I know you have another quote, actually, by Edward Said. Uh, but just in terms of people's responsibility to speak out when it's hard, particularly when people are being gaslit, when the, the when oppressors use deceit to, 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 to muddy the waters, to turn reality up on its head. So I suppose it's about, you know, speaking the truth, standing up against injustice, given your own, I'd say, incredible experience and heritage in the in the current mm -hmm. context, when there is actually an attempt to silence and vilify and marginalize anyone who speaks out and how few are speaking out. What's your just thoughts on all that? Sure. That's, you know, the first thing I want to say on that, Owen, is, I mean, I have enormous respect for the way in which you have addressed this issue. Don't compliment me. I hate being complimented. But no, no, no. It's, it's actually really serious because even people who you know, are fairly obviously personally of the left, if you will, although there's, those labels are problematic, but many people have not spoken out. So, so I think it is incredibly important to note when people like yourself and others have. Well, I'd never forgive myself. So, I mean, I wouldn't be able to look at myself well, in the mirror. I think that's one of the reasons. It, 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 it's where I started in South Africa. How do you live with yourself when you know you are living the very comfortable life you are living because 83% of the population has nothing and live in the most extraordinarily bad circumstances. You know, to find a white South African today who was supportive of apartheid is impossible. But it's amazing how the vast, vast majority of them, every, every election voted for the party of apartheid or worse. And, you know, my involvement in the South African struggle and my involvement in anti-racist struggles generally have been a source of nothing but privilege for me. To have said that I worked with someone like Mandela, that I knew someone like Tutu, that they would even give me the time of day. So that the sort of the nonsense that comes with it and it came even from within my own family. I was once very publicly, I led a relief operation for a squatter settlement that had been burned to the ground 
by the apartheid security forces. 70,000 shacks just burned to the ground in the space of a few hours. And I illegally went into this community with 20 students in the organization I ran. And then they wouldn't let us out because they didn't want white South Africa or the world to know what they were doing. And it took a remarkable Jewish MP called Helen Sussman, who was the only opposition member of parliament at the time, to stand up and say, you're keeping these 21 students against their will, let them out. And that's how we got released. I arrived home and an uncle of mine happened to be at the house and he said to me, what's the matter with you? Are you on drugs? What were you doing there? And I said to him, what do you mean? And he said to me, just be grateful that it's the Schwarzes and not us this time. I never spoke to him again in my life. So, you know, the fact that I was called all sorts of things that were really disgusting and racist, the fact that people now, because I'm not uncritical about Israel and about what is going on in the Palestinian territories, describe me as a self-hating Jew. My children would argue exactly the opposite is the problem. Um, or, you know, that I'm an anti-Semite somehow. Um, my first degrees were in clinical psychology and I find some of these contortions just extraordinarily embarrassing. This sort of use of facile pop psychology because someone has different political views to you is really such a reflection of the people who use that sort of language. But to have to suffer that isn't pleasant. But by comparison to what the people who you are trying to sympathize, empathize with, and to seek solidarity with, what they are suffering. You know, what Palestinians in Gaza have suffered over the past months, we actually can't conceive, because if we could, we wouldn't be able to go about our daily lives. It is too horrific to be able to conceive. So our responsibility as privileged people is, as you say, to speak truth to power. And it has never been more important than it is today. Because as you say, Edward Said, the brilliant Palestinian intellectual, described this phenomenon of power repeating untruths until it has the force of truth. And that's what apartheid South Africa was based on. It was this total lie. You know, when I was 15 years old, and these recruiters came to school to sign us up for our compulsory military service. They said to us, people say there's a communist behind every bush on the border. That's the border with black Africa, with the frontline states. That's not true, he said. There are not enough bushes. And there were these sort of these appalling lies that were engendered and that people came to internalize and believe and a lot of them had to do with our own superiority, as I very sadly see amongst many Israelis. Because I think the dehumanization of the other, unfortunately, dehumanizes the oppressor as well. And Gaza has shown us that in the most appalling ways. But I think we have to ensure that as much of the unvarnished truth gets out into the world as possible. And if that makes people dislike us or hate us or resent us or call us ridiculous names, so be it. Far rather to live a life in truth in that way, in pursuit of justice, of equality, than to pursue 
a life of comfort, ignoring the injustices that are often being done in your name and often, as is the case with Israel at the moment, given Britain's supply of weapons to Israel, is also being done with our tax pounds. I think if we all took the time to think about it, we would all come to the same conclusion and we would all agree with Nelson Mandela that Palestine is the most important moral issue of our time. Wow, one of the most powerful interviews I've ever done. It's rare that I end an interview on, on, on the brink of tears. Um, that was incredibly, incredibly powerful stuff, though. Um, and I think, I think everyone who watches this or listens to this will be incredibly touched and moved. And just, just finally on that, you know, you know what really struck home to me there was whatever people in Western countries may face if they speak out for Palestine, if they speak the truth, right now almost every day, a Palestinian journalist is being slaughtered by the Israeli states as they speak truth and bear witness in unbelievable and indescribable horror, knowing every day could be their last, knowing every moment could be their last, watching those they love be killed, slaughtered, like the Palestinian journalist, the Gaza correspondent of Al Jazeera, his entire family almost was wiped out, his wife, kids and the rest, and the next day he went to work. And then another time he was injured and one of his colleagues was killed and the next day he went to work. And I think if they have that kind of courage to speak the truth about what is happening to the Palestinian people in Gaza, the least we can do in these comfortable umbrons where we have this privilege and we don't suffer the constant threat of unbelievable violence and misery and suffering. Um, the least we can do is to speak out. Andrew, that was just such an incredible, uh, powerful interview. Do share this interview. Make sure everyone hears this. I think it will have a big impact um, on a lot of people. It certainly had a big impact on me. Like, subscribe. But Andrew, thank you. It was a big, big privilege. Thank you so much. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.